Welcome everyone to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if by any chance you can help keep them coming, please uh, go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Explaining. The link is in the description, and contribute whatever you might be able to, even if it's just a dollar. It's been a pretty long while since I posted a new lecture, uh, a little over a month, I believe. It's been a very busy holiday season, all the usual excuses. Uh, I've been traveling and now I'm back in New England where the temperature is a balmy five degrees above zero Fahrenheit. So this is a comparatively spring-like day today. Last fall, a listener asked me to review a particular book called The Strange Death of Europe by Douglas Murray, which is a book that came out last year in the spring, and it's attracted a lot of attention and a lot of discussion, much of it rightly so. And despite the long delay, I'm going to try to make a review of it now. And that is actually a fairly complicated endeavor because this is a very complex book. As you'll see, I wouldn't say that overall it's a very good book, although it has good parts. Uh, it is a book that raises a lot of very important, difficult topics and questions that have not really been properly discussed either in Europe or here in the United States and that are much more difficult to really answer, I think, for all sides in the discussion than we have acknowledged. So I'm going to discuss this book and its various strengths and weaknesses and also use it as a jumping off point to talk about Europe, its history and social structure, and its relationship to Islam, which is one of the points that Douglas Murray tackles in The Strange Death of Europe. And since these are such big and important subjects that I think there's so much to say about, I have actually split this review into two parts, which should appear on my podcast as two lectures, and this is the first one. Murray begins his book with the simple sentence, quote, Europe is committing suicide. He then goes on to illustrate in somewhat better detail exactly what he means. His argument has two basic points. On the one hand, Europe is allowing in an influx of millions of immigrants and refugees from abroad. This process began in the post-war era, but has dramatically escalated in recent years, especially with the refugee crisis of the past decade. These immigrants and refugees, for the most part, have very different cultures, values, and habits from the indigenous people of Europe. And secondly, his other point is that at the same time that this large-scale immigration is happening, Europe has lost its confidence in itself and its will to defend its own culture and values 
Europe, in his view, is stuck in a kind of malaise of guilt and self-doubt. And as a result, Murray believes Europe is going to change and be fundamentally reworked into some sort of completely different society. And as he says it several times through the book, uh, within this century, Europe as we know it will cease to exist. Okay, this is the death of Europe he's talking about in the title. So what do I make of this book? What is he trying to say? How well does he argue it and what can we take from it? Well, one obvious fact that practically any reviewer must point out is that Murray is a very elegant writer. Uh, the book is brimming with beautifully composed and pithy sentences and indeed entire paragraphs. He has a sense of poetry and of irony and much of his phrasing is powerful and memorable. Uh, and to give credit where credit is due, some of that is because he actually has very important and pithy points to make. However, one cannot say the same thing about the overall book as a whole. Beyond the paragraph scale, the book is very disorganized. It's meandering and repetitive. He shifts back and forth among various different lines of argument and topics, sometimes even within the same paragraph. Uh, the book does not have a clear narrative or argumentative through line. Rather, the chapters tend to leap around from subject to subject. Many of them have very vague, uh, oblique titles like They Are Here or We Have Seen Everything that really don't give any clue to the point or uh, subtopic that we should expect to encounter in the given chapter, and hence it's almost impossible to look through the table of contents and get a sense of the thrust of Murray's argument. The book uh, actually reads much more like a series of opinion columns collected together into book form rather than uh, in the manner of a book that was pre-planned and outlined uh, to, to have a certain progression to it. In fact, I would further say that it has the feel and rhythm of a book that was probably uh, hastily put together from some pre-existing materials or ideas and rushed to the publishers and the presses in order to get it out to bookstores while the topic was still relevant and in headlines, right? Namely, the refugee crisis of 2015 and 16, which is a lot of his impetus for writing this book. So the different arguments and points that he makes in the book tend to be very entangled. Uh, they loop one into the other. They sort of jump back and forth. And it's difficult then to summarize beyond that basic little heading that I gave you at the beginning. It's very difficult to summarize exactly what the book says and weigh what is persuasive and what is not. However, I'm going to try my best now to disentangle the different lines of arguments in the book and put them into something more like a coherent uh, methodical sequence. And I'm going to use as my guideposts the subtitle 
of the book. Okay, so the full title of the book actually is The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam. Okay, so I'm going to use those three I words as organizing points to try to uh, dissect what he's saying and, and how. Okay, so to begin with immigration. Murray argues that European leaders in the post-war era, era, so the mid-20th century, changed their nation's policies to allow for some limited degree of immigration, particularly from former colonies and some other nearby neighboring countries like the Middle East and North Africa. However, these European post-war leaders drastically underestimated the scale and impact of this new immigration. They tended to speak of these immigrants as guest workers, or in Germany specifically as Gastarbeiters, and they assumed that they could somehow be let into Europe only temporarily, that at some point they would return to their home countries, that they would not settle and become a permanent segment of European society, and that they would have basically no long-term social and economic impacts. Uh, this obviously is not what happened. Uh, most did settle permanently, and the stream of migrants only grew over time. Debate over whether this was a good thing or over the negative and positive points of increasing immigration were, was stifled. There are various reasons why this debate has been stifled. One is because of paranoid and racist attacks on immigrants that have been made over the years, such as Enoch Powell's infamous Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, which basically cast critics of immigration in a very negative light as paranoid and prejudiced, and in a sense poisoned the well against further reasoned debate about immigration policy. And Murray argues over the decades since the 60s, uh, liberal supporters of liberal immigration policies have repeatedly smeared or shouted down critics of immigration as racists and bigots. The comparatively liberal immigration system that European countries set up in this post-war era was then subsequently overwhelmed by the enormous flow of migrants, many of them, but not all, refugees, between 2011 and today. Northern European countries basically threw the burden of monitoring and controlling the migrants and asylum seekers onto the Southern European frontline countries, particularly Italy and Greece. These countries simply did not have the resources to deal with the tremendous numbers, thousands, sometimes several thousand people a day, showing up on their shores. Uh, the system was quickly overwhelmed, and understandably, Italy and Greece have simply allowed many of those migrants to continue out of their own borders and into Central and Northern Europe, where no one keeps track of them, and where those claiming to be refugees and seeking asylum are not... Uh, examined or questioned, uh, and basically all sorts of enforcement mechanisms have simply been overwhelmed. Processing 
uh, the various claims for visas, residency, and asylum uh, is, is not feasible, and much less is deportation of those who cannot legitimately claim asylum. So there's a de facto situation where basically anybody who manages to get across a channel of water and onto European shores is able to stay permanently. Meanwhile, as this has gone on, other countries that could help by accepting some of these migrants and refugees, giving them shelter, employment, and so forth, have refused, particularly Middle Eastern and North African countries, uh, as well as the United States and, and Russia. So the burden of dealing with the large numbers of displaced people and refugees in recent years has been thrown unfairly onto Western Europe. Now, apart from this narrative of the increasing flow of migrants, Murray argues that immigration has serious negative effects on European countries. Uh, it puts a fiscal burden on countries like France, Germany, and Britain, where migrants often settle and then thereafter claim social benefits like health care or subsidized housing. Uh, beyond what they are contributing into the system. It also brings significant new levels of crime and kinds of crime that these Western European countries haven't had to deal with before. There's been a large increase in sexual assaults and rapes, uh, particularly in Central and Northern Europe, Germany and Sweden. Uh, there has been an increasing pattern of honor killings where immigrant families uh, murder their own members, particularly young women, because either they refuse arranged marriages or they engage in relationships with men their families don't approve of. Uh, and this, this wave of, of honor killing has not been effectively investigated, let alone stamped out. And also the practice of female genital mutilation has become known in Europe where it previously was unknown. So one can see there are these significant uh, downsides, at least debatably, significant downsides to the increasing wave of immigration into Europe. And those in power in politics and the media, in Murray's view, have tended to deny these problems, to cover them up, and to suppress debate thus forcing critics of immigration out of mainstream politics and media and instead into extreme right-wing parties. So at one point late in the book, this uh, Murray actually suggests that this is a large part of the explanation of the rise of right-wing extremism in Europe, is that those who merely acknowledge the problems and downsides of immigration are shunted off out of the mainstream and into extremists. Okay, what does all of this have to do with identity? So, as I said, the second term in his subtitle is identity. In about the middle of the book, Murray begins to explore what he considers the long-standing core weakness in European civilization. As he points out, Christianity and Christian adherents are dramatically declining. 
all kinds of traditional art forms and customs are failing to transmit to the younger generations. Uh, the institutions of Western Europe, particularly churches, uh, just sort of dispense watered-down platitudes rather than the more fully formed orthodoxies and strong beliefs of the past. And as a result, European civilization lacks any answers to basic questions about the purpose of life. And he calls this sort of malaise, uh, tiredness or exhaustion. And interestingly, at one point, he cites the Swedish uh, parliamentary secretary who was asked several years ago whether she believed that Swedish culture was worth preserving. And she responded, quote, what is Swedish culture? And with that, I guess I've answered the question. And this is the sort of thinking that Murray sees as emblematic of the tiredness and exhaustion of Western European life, a lack of interest, a lack of loyalty to one's own traditions and culture. He argues that Europe is plagued with guilt over its imperialist past and other supposed crimes, which basically debilitates it from defending its own interests and its own beliefs and values. And as a result, there is a lack of assimilation and integration of newcomers into Europe. Uh, in fact, as he points out, there is even some considerable pattern of conversion the other way, you might say, in the sense that a number of native-born Europeans are now converting to Islam uh, because they find it uh, more appealing and as answering basic needs and questions that Western European life doesn't. And hence he warns that a rising proportion of Europe is becoming Muslim and will somehow in this way be fundamentally changed from what it is. Okay, so the last element in his subtitle, as I said, is Islam. Okay, how does Islam fit into this situation? Well, firstly, Murray believes that basic European principles like free speech and the rule of law are under threat from immigration, particularly from Muslims. Uh, he discusses the wave of threats and assaults that followed after the fatwa against Salman Rushdie in 1989, and he argues that this uh, sort of outbreak of low-level violence was, in fact, a harbinger of what was to come. He sees the uh, sort of Islamic assault on freedom of speech escalating through the years, uh, including the murder of Theo van Gogh in the Netherlands, a Dutch uh, filmmaker who had criticized honor killings among immigrants in the Netherlands and was subsequently brutally murdered, the controversy over the Danish cartoons of Muhammad, and finally culminating in the massacre of Charlie Hebdo a few years ago in Paris. So uh, Murray argues that uh, this pattern has effectively clamped down criticism of Islam and Muslims and had a kind of general chilling effect in Europe. He also further argues that some sort of intangible social change is happening a kind of soft Islamization, 
He describes various parts of Britain as, quote, indistinguishable from Pakistan. And he describes the marketplace in Saint-Denis in Paris as more of a souk than a market. Uh, And he prophecies that in the future, Native Europeans will be demographically outnumbered and become minorities, as they have already in some cities like London. And he imagines the future of the continent. Uh, At the end of the book, he says, quote, this place where international cities develop into something resembling international countries will be many things, but it will not be Europe anymore. Okay. So in the final analysis, he sees Islam as playing some sort of key role or cutting edge role in changing and remaking Europe into the image of something else that it is not. Okay. So before we go ahead and sound the death knell of Europe, let's stop and evaluate his arguments and how he supports them. Now, of course, it would be very easy right off the bat to simply dismiss Murray and his book as racist and xenophobic. And certainly there are many notions, lines of thinking in the book that I and many others would consider to be racist or xenophobic. But simply labeling it as such and dismissing it in this way would be an easy cop-out. As I said, Murray is tackling difficult issues that I do believe have been uh, suppressed and shunted aside and not sufficiently discussed. And even a stopped clock is right twice a day. And uh, I believe that Douglas Murray is smarter than just a stopped clock and actually has important points that we need to grapple with. I don't want to fall into a simple knee-jerk reaction. So there are questions about economics, about who gains and loses economically in immigration. There are questions about crime and violence and also about identity and social cohesion that it would be very naive to simply ignore, okay? And simply making peons to diversity, tolerance, and so forth, these kinds of platitudes will not make these hard questions go away. Uh, In fact, and I'll mention now, uh, the middle of the book includes two chapters where Douglas Murray actually traveled to Lampedusa in Italy and the island of Lesbos in Greece in order to interview incoming refugees who were fleeing to Europe, particularly from Afghanistan. Uh, There's no apparent reason why he did this and why he included these chapters uh, other than perhaps as a defense against being labeled as simply a heartless uh, racist. Uh, He never really integrates them into a larger line of argument about migration into Europe. And to be fair, he does show real concern for the violence and oppression that many of these people were subjected to, that they were hoping to, uh, to escape. So I think it would be wise to simply give Mr. Murray the benefit of the doubt that he's not motivated at least not entirely, by racism or xenophobia, but is actually trying to examine and balance competing claims and competing interests. 
And finally, I would say uh, it's important to engage in this discussion rather than label any criticism of immigration as simply racist or xenophobic. The fact is that all countries all over the world are understood to have a rightful authority to regulate and control immigration and migration into their own countries. In my life, I've traveled around Europe, I've traveled to Africa, Japan, and the Caribbean, and every country I've gone into, I've always had my passport checked. This is simply the long-standing uh, standard of international law. Uh, so merely saying that countries like the Netherlands or Italy or Britain should have the authority to check people's passports and ask who is coming, why are they coming, and how long should they be able to stay and on what terms, uh, this should not be simply condemned out of hand. This is a legitimate policy question that every country needs to weigh and consider. And lastly, before I evaluate his arguments further, I should point out that I'm an American, you can probably tell, and most of my listeners are American, and so my reaction and many of my listeners' reaction to Murray's arguments uh, is bound to be characterized and defined in large part by our American perspective, which is different from that of a European. Uh, the United States, of course, has different social and political conditions and a different history from countries in the continent of Europe. Uh, for one thing, the United States is much more accustomed to mass immigration than European countries are. Okay, the United States, of course, was created in the first place by migrants who came to this continent from another, many of them illegally and against the approval of the indigenous people, and who created new societies from whole cloth and thus created the United States. Uh, so the United States always from the first has had a much more sanguine view about immigration and worries about whether migrants are going to integrate into their new society often sound paranoid and short-sighted to Americans. Okay, uh, Americans have had a very long history and a great deal of experience in seeing integration at work. Uh, first uh, Europeans, then uh, you know, Latin Americans, East Asians, many waves of people from now all parts of the world have come and in fairly short order, within basically one generation, have become effectively Americanized and not long after that have actually intermarried with other Americans. Uh, in fact, comedies about immigrant families dealing with integration and intermarriage has become practically a cliché of American popular culture. You know, from Abe's Irish Rose to My Big Fat Greek Wedding to The Big Sick, uh, it's practically a staple of American life, watching the tensions, the frictions of adaptation and eventually intermingling in American society. Also, Americans are more migratory and mobile in general. 
Okay, very few Americans have ancient long-standing attachments to a particular place. Americans have constantly moved around from city to city and state to state. And this is one of our major differences with Europe, where many Europeans have long-standing, multiple generation or even thousand year or more connections to a particular village, a particular uh, county, in a way that Americans rarely see. Economically speaking, the United States has pretty much always benefited from the advantages of immigration because we've historically had a labor shortage in proportion to the natural resources of the country. Okay, the United States expanded rapidly, uh, cleansed out Native Americans from large areas, and gained access to enormous amounts of land and natural resources, the main shortage being labor. Okay, so, so the influx of people has tended, on the whole, to buoy the American economy. This is not necessarily true for most of Europe. Okay, Europe has not had the same kind of labor shortage. There's no, uh, you know, acute lack of people in France or, or Britain or, or Spain. So immigration is going to have different kinds of economic effects and different benefits and downsides. The United States has many mechanisms for integrating immigrants into American society. Okay, uh, Integration of immigrants tends to be easiest and fastest in countries with more immigrants in them. Okay, This is because the immigrant community tends to act as a bridge, uh, allowing for acculturation and eventual integration. Uh, immigrants have participated in the long-standing American craze for fraternalism and voluntary associationalism. Okay, and it's through organizations like Sons of Italy and the Landsmannschaften and Chinese Benevolent Associations and so forth. Uh, these institutions have facilitated uh, acculturation and integration and the creation of a place in American society for immigrants. The same is not true in Europe, mainly because Europe does not have the same custom of associationalism that Americans do. These sorts of voluntary clubs and societies do not proliferate in Europe the way they do in America, and hence it's a much more difficult question how newcomers are going to fit in and have a place and a voice in their new society. Okay. So as I said, Europe is more accustomed to long-standing stable populations, continuity, and uh, not surprisingly, the United States is the only industrialized country where the majority of people in polls say that diversity and immigration are good for the country. This is not to say all Americans do. It is not to say that there isn't uh, virulent xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States. There certainly is. But it is a much lower proportion than in Europe. And, uh, and in basically all of the industrialized world. Okay. The U.S. has traditionally defined itself in ideological terms. Okay. Uh, um, Americanism is understood to be an ideological doctrine. Okay. The, the, the credos about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all the rest in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it's this kind of attitude about government, religion, 
uh, freedom, entrepreneurialism, and so forth. This is what's understood to be characteristically American. And as long as one fits under that ideological umbrella or buys into that basic sort of ideological viewpoint, one can tolerate a great uh, diversity and variation in terms of language, religion, uh, lifestyle, customs, color, uh, and so forth. Again, this is not to say there isn't prejudice or xenophobia, but by and large, the United States is much more open to this kind of variation. Europe is not traditionally defined ideologically in this way. Okay, There's a much greater range of political views that are acceptable in the mainstream in Europe, all the way from communist and Trotskyist to right-wing monarchist. Uh, there's much more political ideological variation and instead belong, social belonging and identity tends to be defined by lifestyle customs, okay, language, religion, diet, clothing, and so forth, okay. And this is one of the reasons why it might strike Americans as bizarre if a European starts to, uh, you know, have fits and uh, get upset about people walking around in different clothing, okay, whereas Americans tend to hardly notice. Furthermore, a second point we need to recognize is that the U.S. gets a very different sampling of migrants as compared to Europe, okay. Immigrants to the United States, particularly from the Middle East and North Africa, come in a much smaller stream Okay, in smaller numbers, and they tend to be self-selected. They tend to be overwhelmingly more educated and worldly and pro-Western. Okay, those who choose to come from Muslim countries into the United States are coming to a country that fundamentalists refer to as the Great Satan. Okay, and if you're willing to move and make your life in the great Satan, you probably have already adapted to more tolerant and pro-Western attitudes, okay? There are geographic, economic, and legal hurdles to migrants coming into the United States that now are much lower or even disappeared entirely with regard to Europe. And so the large stream of migrants going into Europe today are different. They have different attitudes from what we tend to see among immigrants to the United States. Okay, there's much greater support for uh, reprisals or even violence against those who insult Islam. There's wide, more widespread practice of honor killings and these sorts of uh, customs that are comparatively extremely rare or totally unheard of in the United States. The migrants going into Europe today have much greater levels of intense anti-Semitism. There's been a rise in anti-Semitic attacks and firebombings. Uh, there was a recent firebombing of a synagogue in Sweden uh, by Muslim immigrants to Sweden. This sort of violence is practically unheard of in the United States. And similarly, there, there's been a rise in harassment and assaults against homosexuals and others who are objects of, of prejudice uh, in ways that we very rarely or practically don't see at all among immigrants to the United States. 
and I should note one of the reasons for this difference is the difference in who staffs and leads mosques and other Islamic organizations in the United States as compared to Europe. In Europe, many mosques are staffed by uh, extremist clerics, particularly from Pakistan, and receive a lot of funding from abroad, particularly Saudi Arabia. And in this environment, many Muslim immigrants can actually be radicalized or at least pushed to more extreme intolerant views, again, in a way that we practically never see in the United States. So the situation is really different. So uh, I'm sure I've belabored, belabored that point far too much, but we should have all of these differences in mind when we consider the point of view of Europe and of a writer like Douglas Murray. I believe that Murray makes a strong case that the European governing elites have been almost totally oblivious and inept in failing to face these difficult uh, complications in, uh, in the effects of immigration to Europe. And a lot of this oblivion and ineptitude derives from the mistake of simply importing American attitudes and um, the American mentality over into Europe, where the situation really is different. Now, Murray doesn't make that argument himself, but I am making it for him uh, in addressing a largely American audience, that we should bear in mind that a lot of these notions about diversity and inclusion uh, and so forth uh, are, are are imports really from the United States where experiences of immigration and integration have been different from Europe. So all of that being said, let's talk about what does Murray uh, effectively argue persuasively? Well, to begin with, Murray does very effectively dismantle the long litany of pro-immigration arguments that European liberals have tended to make over about the past uh, 50 years, okay, and shows that all of them are, are largely hollow and further, in my view, are largely uh, misfit uh, borrowings from the American situation. To begin with, large-scale immigration into Europe was never really economically necessary, and it's actually doubtful whether it's economically beneficial on balance. Europe has never been in such great need of labor as much of the United States is. Uh, although he doesn't say so in his book, uh, the natural and obvious response to a shortage of labor is to simply raise wages, okay? And uh, this is what employers in Europe could have done over many decades in order to bring more people into the workforce. But instead of doing that, uh, business and the political establishment in Europe have advocated importing workers from abroad and in this way largely keeping wages low, which was never really an economically good idea. You'll often hear the argument that Europe has a graying population, okay, that the, the population in Europe is, is getting older and they are not being replaced in the workforce by younger Europeans coming up, 
okay? There's a lack of young native-born Europeans. There's small family sizes, small numbers of children, and hence uh, a smaller young workforce to support the older population. However, as Murray very rightly points out, the response to this shouldn't necessarily be import people from abroad. Rather, one could question why are there few young Europeans being born and raised to replace the aging population? And in many surveys and studies, it's been found that, in fact, most Europeans are not having as many children as they would like to. Many actually want to have children or large families, but feel that they cannot because it's economically impossible, because wages are not enough, their incomes are too small, to afford the expenses of raising a family. And hence, lifting wages or providing better subsidies to help people care for children would be one reasonable response to this small, uh, low birth rate in Europe. Rather, uh, again, importing people from abroad does not seem to be a way to solve the actual root problem. Many have also made the argument that immigrants are a boon fiscally to the countries where they settle, that they actually pay much more in taxes than they take out of the government system in terms of uh, welfare benefits and subsidies. This is actually very doubtful. Uh, a much trumpeted study from 2013 examined various segments of the immigrant population in Britain, and the media tended to celebrate the finding that recent immigrants, those who had come into Britain between 2001 and 2011, actually were a net fiscal boon. They tended to pay in several billion dollars more or several billion pounds more in taxes than they took in terms of subsidies and social services. However, they ignored the other part of the report, which included less recent immigrants, okay, immigrants in Britain that had immigrated before 2001, uh, many of whom were now older. And when those were factored in, it was actually found that immigrants are by far a net drain on the British Treasury, that they actually take out more than 100 billion pounds more a year uh, in, in social services and subsidies than they pay in in taxes. So all in all, what this study tends to show uh, corroborates what many Americans and Europeans would suspect anyway, which is that recent immigrants tend to be young, uh, hardworking, many of them entrepreneurial. Uh, they contribute greatly to society, and on the whole, they are a bit of a fiscal boon in terms of the public accounts. But like everybody else, they also get old, they also get sick, and that when one factors in the entire lifespan, in fact, we find that they are about as much of a fiscal burden as any other lower-income resident of their country. Okay, so in, in, in the big picture, regardless of other arguments about morality or justice, in the big picture, we don't see that immigrants are actually economically beneficial on net. And as Murray and others often point out, they often place strains on public services and public and subsidized housing, 
At the same time that those services and subsidized housing are suffering from austerity and from increasing demand due to economic inequality. Okay. Now, Murray, in his book, he does uh, point out these concerns about public services like the National Health Service in, in Britain and council housing and so on being uh, overburdened by lower-income immigrants, but he does not fit that into the bigger picture, which shows why that is such a problem, which is the wave of austerity being imposed on the continent uh, and the severe and growing economic inequality uh, at the same time that these immigrants are coming in. Some have also made a moral argument that Europe has a special moral responsibility to allow unrestricted immigration, particularly because so many of these European countries were imperial powers that have previously colonized much of the world and so they, in a sense, owe it to the world to allow these immigrants to come in. Uh, you know, that's an interesting argument so far as it goes, but many of these European countries that are dealing with this crisis, like Luxembourg or Norway, uh, were never imperial powers and never colonized these various countries, but they are dealing with this influx of immigrants and refugees today. It also raises the very important question of why this sort of special historical responsibility apparently is only applied to Europe uh, and not to other former imperial powers such as Japan, the United States, and Russia. And in the current refugee crisis, why it seems that this sort of special responsibility to deal with refugees from Libya and Syria should fall on Europe and not on the countries that have actually been actively involved in destabilizing and fueling those civil wars, such as the United States, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Okay, so so if if one wants to go down this this line of reasoning about having a special moral burden, uh, it, it it's unclear why this should fall so completely on Europe. Furthermore one can question whether this sort of uh, o open borders or liberal immigration policy is actually a good way of making recompense to these colonies, these former colonies or countries that have been one way or another uh, damaged by European imperialism. Uh, in fact, it's probably on net uh, detrimental to those various other countries to allow this sort of unrestricted immigration. Uh, countries like Somalia do not necessarily benefit by having large numbers of Somalians leave and go to Europe because disproportionately so many of them are people with more education, more world experience, uh, more money and resources, and it simply creates a brain drain out of those countries into Europe. Many have argued that Europe benefits from diversity uh, this is fair enough. It's a fair enough point as far as it goes. Uh, you know, immigrants bring new customs, new ideas, new practices into Europe. But as Murray points out, there's no clear limit or horizon. Uh, is there some point where Europe will be diverse enough? Or should the gates simply be opened and an endless, indefinite, unlimited number of migrants can come in? Uh, you know, it, 
is diversity simply always an added benefit when any person from anywhere comes into Europe? Okay, there's no there's no clear horizon here. What is the goal? Uh, what is the end point where diversification will have been achieved? And lastly, uh, Murray debunks effectively the notion that mass immigration is simply inevitable and unstoppable. Okay, you'll often hear supporters of globalization in one form or another say, well, you can't fight it, it's simply unstoppable, so don't even try. Uh, but th this is clearly not true. There are many counterexamples, particularly Japan. Okay, Japan is a highly developed, affluent country, a modern country. It's very much part of the global economy, but it has a very restrictive immigration policy, which keeps the number of migrants settling in Japan at a very low level. And it's very selective about who can settle and on what terms. This is not to say that Japan's policy is right or that uh, European countries have to adopt Japan's model, but it is to say that uh, mass immigration is not an inevitable or unstoppable force. Okay, It's a matter of policy, and countries have to make hard choices about what to allow and on what terms. And finally, over, I would say overlying all of these debunked and weak arguments is a general naivety. Okay? As I said, it's an importation of American ideas and attitudes to a different environment where they don't necessarily make sense. And they reflect a naivety, a notion that all migrants are, uh, are victims, victims of oppression, and hence as victims they are simply innocent and harmless and do not bring any sort of negative effects or problems as they migrate, okay? Uh, it reflects, I would say, a, a view of the world where all people can be easily and simply divided into categories of oppressors and victims. And Europe is an oppressor, migrants are victims, and hence uh, any action to benefit the supposed victims can only be good, and any negative consequences should simply be uh, ignored. Okay, this is, this is a simplistic and naive outlook, which obviously Murray does not share in, and which enables him to make these effective uh, critiques and counter-arguments. Okay, so Murray, in my view, makes very effective counter-arguments and dismantles a lot of the, the weak ideas that have been put forward to support either liberal immigration policies or total unrestricted immigration. However, he doesn't build an effective counter-argument, a persuasive or reliable argument for restricting immigration. And in fact, he never even makes clear exactly what he wants or what he thinks would be an acceptable immigration policy, acceptable numbers, acceptable selection procedures. He's very nonspecific. Uh, so the book mainly functions as a response to the prevailing mainstream liberal mentality. It doesn't actually provide uh, a persuasive alternative model. And I would say the first weakness of the book, which is very revealing, is that while he shows the hollowness and the naivety of many of these arguments for mass immigration, 
he never accounts for why those ideas are so prevalent. Why is it that the governing class and the mass media, the mainstream media in Europe, uh, sort of blithely defend mass immigration in all of these failed ways? What is it that attracts them about mass immigration? Okay, why do they support mass immigration and why do they suppress and attack their opposing viewpoint? Is it that they're simply dumb? I believe it's not. The first major factor that Murray doesn't consider is the economic motivation for the governing elites of Europe to support mass immigration. Okay, most of these immigrants supply low-wage labor. Okay, and they have the effect of supplying a cheap labor force and weakening unions. Okay, Europe is more strongly unionized in its workforce than the United States is, by far. And large influxes of cheap labor tend to weaken that, uh, to weaken bargaining power and to suppress wages. So much of the governing and media class in Europe is itself college-educated upper-middle-class, and they tend to benefit, by and large. They may not benefit personally, directly, but their class, the white-collar, upper-and-middle-class, tends to benefit from that economic arrangement. Uh, and Murray, I think, fails to sort of peel off the mask and explain that that is much of the underlying motivation for this support for mass immigration. Okay. Uh, he ignores the fact that in his own country, Great Britain, there is tremendous opposition to mass immigration, but most of the anger and fear in recent years in Britain has been directed not towards Muslims or Africans or Asians, but rather towards Eastern Europeans, particularly Poles, okay, who in many cases are moderately skilled workers who are able to migrate freely within the EU and so come into Britain and replace the moderately skilled workers like plumbers or electricians in Britain and drive down their wages and reduce their job security. Okay, I don't say this in order to demonize Poles or Eastern Europeans, that's a whole other matter, but rather to point out that there are simple nuts and bolts economic issues at stake wages, job security, and class issues that Murray is overlooking and leaving out of the story in favor of this sort of talk about identity and religion and so forth. Uh, and this makes his book less persuasive. Furthermore, Murray uh, complains bitterly for much of the first several chapters of the book. He complains bitterly about the massive silencing of debate over immigration by sort of PC-obsessed liberals. But as I said, he doesn't explain the motivation between this kind of PC mania, and rather he, he massively exaggerates it, okay? For instance, on page four of the book, still in the introduction, he describes an overheard conversation between the German uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel and the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, which took place in 2015. And he describes the conversation in this way. He says, Chancellor Merkel of Germany asked the Facebook CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, 
What could be done to stop European citizens writing criticisms of her migration policy on Facebook? Are you working on this? She asked him. He assured her that he was. So that's a very concerning anecdote. You know, we seem to see a powerful European politicians using their influence over media to suppress criticism of their immigration policy. So it fits right into the picture Murray is trying to paint. Uh, however, he cites as his source a report from Bloomberg from that year. And the Bloomberg article has the title, quote, Merkel confronts Facebook's Zuckerberg over policing hate posts. And if one goes and reads the article, one sees that actually Merkel was pressuring Zuckerberg to suppress so-called hate posts, meaning posts that contained inflammatory racist rhetoric uh, and that violated Germany's very strict hate speech laws. Okay. So it does not say that Merkel asked Zuckerberg to suppress or remove posts that criticized her immigration policy. Okay. Now, Murray, understandably, could look at that source and he could argue that probably Merkel was actually using hate posts, hate speech as a mere pretext to try to suppress criticism of her policies. He could argue more broadly that Germany's restrictive hate speech laws actually are a slippery slope and allow for politicians to suppress uh, criticism. But he doesn't do that, okay? Murray doesn't make those arguments. Rather, what he does is he simply misstates what the article said, okay? This is an example of where Murray should be very careful when he cites his sources because he ought to be afraid that someone will actually track them down and read them and see that they do not say what he claims that they say. Another similar example of this comes a little later on page 11 where uh, Murray discusses the predictions and extrapolations that European demographers made about the eventual growth of the immigrant population and of the Muslim population in Europe. And he claims that many of these predictions and extrapolations about the demographic future were condemned and shouted down as being xenophobic or racist. And as an example, he points to the British Home Secretary Blunkett uh, in parliamentary debate in, let me get the page, I'm being, I'm being very academic here, I want to get the page and the quotation. He says in 2002, this is Murray's words, he says, quote, in 2002, a Times journalist made far less startling comments about likely future immigration which were denounced by the Home Secretary David Blunkett using parliamentary privilege as, quote, bordering on fascism. So when I read this, I found this sort of shocking and rather odd that predictions about future immigration could be called fascist. And indeed sounds rather crazy. So I looked up the source that Murray cites, which goes to the parliamentary record, from December 2002. And in that record, we see that the Home Secretary David Blunkett was debating with a fellow MP about immigration policy. 
not about predictions about the future, but about proper immigration policy. And Blunkett said the following, quote, I ask the right honorable gentleman to join me in condemning those whose voices are louder and louder, who are against all legal, never mind illegal, immigration into this country. I heard such comment by one who is very close to the Conservative Party on the Today program this morning. I've read it in the newspapers. I read it almost every other day now in the Times. And I have to say that in the case of Anthony Brown, it borders on fascism. So we see here when we look in the actual parliamentary record, what Blunkett was condemning as bordering on fascism was not predictions or projections about future population, but rather it was the call to halt all legal or illegal immigration into Britain. Now, Murray, of course, could choose to disagree with this. He could argue that it is not anywhere near fascism to want to halt all immigration into a country. Uh, but again, Murray doesn't do that. Instead, he misstates and misrepresents what the historical record actually says. And furthermore, this one is very ironic because it illustrates that, in general, Murray's larger point is wrong. Uh, certainly, there has been suppression of debate, there has been name-calling, but there has at the same time also been a robust and open discussion including criticism of immigration. Okay, it has not been a completely one-sided or completely silenced conversation. And just one more example of this, in the case of the Netherlands, Murray discusses the backlash against an activist and sometime MP in the Netherlands named Ayan Hirsi Ali, who was herself uh, an immigrant to the Netherlands from Somalia, she, or at least she was born in Somalia, and she's become an outspoken critic of Islam and opponent of immigration. Murray complains about the silencing of Ayan Hirsi Ali, and he, he claims uh, on page 155 that, quote, Based on untrue claims made by a television station, the Minister of Immigration and Integration of Ayan Hirsi Ali's own party withdrew her citizenship. Okay, so again, this is quite a shocking uh, story to tell that a, a critic of immigration who herself had come from Somalia was stripped of her citizenship because of smears uh, and false claims made against her. However, when one looks at the historical record, this is not true. Uh, it, actually, the Minister of Immigration made initial steps to strip Ayan Hirsi Ali of her citizenship because she had lied on her visa application. She lied about her age and about her place of residence when she applied for a refugee visa, and according to Dutch law, she therefore should be stripped of her citizenship. However, the parliament passed a motion asking for clemency and a special exception to be made for Ayan Hirsi Ali. The government accepted this motion, and hence she was not stripped of her citizenship, and she still carries a Dutch passport today. Okay, so these are just a few examples where I was able to find, that I was able to find, where Murray manipulates evidence and either obscures or falsifies facts in order to obscure the fact that a vigorous debate has actually gone on, that there has been a lively and often open 
debate about uh, about immigration, about its effects, and about how to respond to it. Simply, the elite viewpoint has tended to be skewed and aloof and has often used sort of name-calling in order to shut down opposition and, and criticism. Okay, so these are a few examples of, of where Murray has, has sort of exaggerated his argument with what, what I would call lies. Others might be more forgiving, but I would say he lied about what the Home, Minister, the, the home Secretary said. Uh, he lied about what Angela Merkel said. He lied about what happened to Ayan Hirsi Ali. Okay, and these are examples where he actually cited a source. Okay, the problem gets even worse when it comes to his discussion of the effects and impacts of immigration in Europe. In that part of the book, which occupies much of the middle of the book, he makes all sorts of claims and doesn't give any citations. He simply asserts them without citing his, his evidence, which, of course, as a historian, that has to send up my red flag. So in reading some of these claims, I went and tried to find evidence and support for them and see whether they were true. Okay, so for one example, when Murray investigates, when he discusses the case of Ailan Kurdi, uh, he describes the outpouring of grief and, and outrage that swept over Europe and much of the world in 2015, when the young boy Ailan Kurdi uh, drowned while trying to cross from Turkey to Greece, and his body was photographed, washed up on a beach in Turkey. Murray claims that this outpouring of grief and, and, and disgust um, overlooked certain key facts, namely that his family had been safely settled in Turkey, which he calls a safe country, and that his father had employment there, and hence there was no necessity for them to leave Turkey and move into Europe. So the implication in Murray's argument is that, is that many of these migrants are in fact simply economic benefit seekers or just looking for economic gain and are not actually legitimate refugees. So I was surprised by what he said about Ailan Kurdi's family being safely settled and employed in Turkey. And I began to search for more information. And as you'll actually find from investigative reporters who looked into their history, uh, what Murray said is false. Uh, the Kurdi family was confined to a refugee camp in Turkey where they had fled because their town in Syria had been repeatedly attacked by ISIS. In this refugee camp, they were not allowed to leave. Uh, they had no exit visa to legally get out of Turkey, and they had no work visa, so they were not allowed to work in Turkey. And the reason they didn't have any of these visas is because they had no passports. Why did they have no passports? Because they were Kurds. And in Syria, Kurds are considered non-citizens. They're labeled as stateless persons who have no legal rights and cannot obtain passports. So hence they had to uh, flee across the border into Turkey without passports and they basically had no rights to employment or to travel once uh, in Turkey and they were simply indefinitely confined to this refugee camp. 
So why did Murray say, uh, why did he make these false statements about Ilan Kurdi's family? Well, I found in searching online that this story, this claim that the Kurdi family was safe and employed in Turkey has been passed around and repeated among various right-wing blogs. Okay. And presumably that's where Douglas Murray got it from, from some sort of, you know, back alley of the internet right-wing blog uh, without any actual basis in fact or research. And this uh, makes me suspect that many of the assertions that Murray makes about immigrants and immigration through much of the book uh, were basically culled from the right-wing internet and are not factually uh, reliable. Just as some other examples, uh, on page 141 to 2, uh, Murray gives us a litany of crimes and social problems that immigrants have brought with them into Europe. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you about a couple of them. One, he says, uh, quote, in 2006, the British Medical Association reported that at least 74,000 women in Britain had been subjected to genital mutilation. Okay, again, that's a very shocking statistic. And it, it immediately made me wonder whether thousands of women in Britain are actually being subjected to this, you know, horrible, violent procedure. Well, uh, in this case, Murray does not give a citation. There's no footnote or endnote corroborating this claim. But he says in 2006, the British Medical Association reported this number. So I looked online for any such report and couldn't find anything. Uh, so naturally, I emailed the library of the British Medical Association and asked them, can you provide any corroboration for this statement in this book? Uh, is there any such report? Is there any such number? And I received a reply from the library saying, no, there is no source for any such statistic in any of their literature, and there was no such report about genital mutilation in 2006. Now, to give... Murray uh, the benefit of the doubt, it is true that the Department of Health in Britain has issued various guidances to doctors and nurses about how to deal with women who have undergone female genital mutilation, and they confirm that there are certainly thousands of women in Britain who have been subjected to it. However, they never distinguish whether these women have been uh, subjected to the procedure in Britain or if they were subjected to it in their countries of origin before they then migrated to Britain. Uh, and in fact, uh, female genital mutilation has been illegal in Britain since the 1980s. Uh, it is against the law with very severe penalties, but no one has ever been convicted of doing it in Britain. So it's very doubtful whether it has ever actually happened in Britain, much less what Murray seems to imply here, which is that 74,000 women have been subjected to it uh, in Britain. In this same paragraph, uh, Murray also says, quote, in the United Kingdom, the police admitted that they had failed to investigate scores of suspicious deaths of young Muslim women because they had thought these potential honor killings were community matters. Okay, again, a very shocking claim. He's claiming that police themselves have admitted that they ignored the killings, suspicious deaths of young women, because out of some sort of PC inhibition of not wanting to investigate uh, Muslims or something like this. 
Well, actually, the historical record doesn't support this. Uh, there is some truth to it in the sense that whistleblowers from British police have come forward and said uh, that they have ignored pleas and calls for help from young immigrant women and that some of these were then subsequently murdered. But investigations and reports have found that these these pleas from young women were ignored, not because of some political correctness or because they were community matters, but because of sexism, because they did not take these claims from young immigrant women seriously. Okay, And in particular, there's a notorious case from 2007 where a young Iranian-British immigrant girl named Banaz Mahmoud told police five times that she was in danger from her family. Okay, She had dated someone they didn't approve of and she was afraid that they were going to hurt her or kill her. But these five pleas for help were ignored and police reports show that the police called her, quote, dramatic and manipulative. Okay, they thought that this was just hysteria on her part. She subsequently was raped and killed by her father and uncle and buried in a suitcase. Okay, so we see here a vivid example of the reasons why honor killings have actually been allowed to go on in much of Europe. Uh, investigations have found that it's more because police fail to take these claims seriously, they find it outlandish, and they refuse to believe the words of young, poor immigrant women. Okay, there's a similar dynamic when it's come to, to so-called grooming gang scandals. Okay, so on page 28 to 9, Murray discusses uh, the Rotherham scandal, which was a tremendous uh, disaster in the town of Rotherham in northern England, where a gang of mostly Pakistani immigrant taxi drivers uh, were able to recruit and groom vulnerable young girls and uh, give them drugs and alcohol and eventually brutally rape them. Uh, hundreds of girls apparently were victimized and for a long time, the practice was ignored, and the first convictions only came in 2011 after years of young girls being molested or raped. So obviously, this is a, a tremendous disaster and embarrassment that raises the question of why uh, this practice was ignored for so long. Uh, there have subsequently been other grooming gang uh, scandals in other parts of, of England, particularly in the Northeast. And on page 56, uh, Murray discusses this wave of grooming scandals, and he says, quote, Every time grooming scandals occurred, it transpired that the local authorities turned a blind eye for fear of causing community problems or being accused of racism. Okay, again, this is not true. If one looks at the official reports and investigations on the disaster in Rotherham, uh, officials clearly said that police were diffident after they had already made arrests and were prosecuting the offenders. They were diffident in talking about the religion or ethnicity of the offenders uh, for fear of causing offense or, or, or scandal or, or even racial or religious violence. However, the investigations did not find that this was the reason for the initial failure to pursue the cases. Rather, this was due, like with honor killings, it was due to the disbelief towards young girls. Okay, The vast majority of the victims of these grooming gangs in northern England have been 
native-born teenage and even preteen British girls, most of them poor and vulnerable, a lot of them depending on public assistance or living in public housing. And when such girls told police and other authorities about the predators who were targeting them, they were not believed. They were considered to be, again, hysterical, overdramatic, and hence these crimes were ignored for years until the lid was suddenly blown off of them beginning in 2011. Okay, so it's very similar to the problem with, uh, with honor killings. So in sum, what we see when we look at these crimes against women in Europe, much of the failure to deal with these crimes that have come with immigration stems from internal problems in Europe, particularly sexism and class prejudice, right? The refusal to take women seriously and particularly poor young women. So it's these internal uh, problems and handicaps affecting policing and law enforcement in Europe that have served to facilitate crimes by immigrants, particularly preying on young women. Okay, so as reports and investigations in Britain have uh, found there is a great need for new training of law enforcement and new education to educate law enforcement to take these dangers seriously and to take warnings seriously. On the other hand, also there is of course a major need to educate immigrants and to integrate them into European norms, including respect for women. Okay. On page nine, 196, uh, Murray discusses a report about new classes being given in Norway in 2015, educating immigrants into Norway on how to respect and how to treat women. Okay, And in one of these uh, uh, cases, the report quotes an immigrant from Eritrea to Norway who admitted that Quote, in his native land, uh, if someone wants a lady, he can just take her and he will not be punished. Okay, so many of these immigrants coming into Europe, what they are accustomed to is impunity. Okay, men can prey upon women. Uh, violence against women is a widespread problem. Uh, it's treated with impunity and it is often rooted in a very misogynistic view of women, a notion that women who aren't veiled or who are not chaperoned by men are, uh, are fair game, okay? This is the experience and the mentality that some of these migrants bring with them and they need to be educated, to be assimilated and acculturated into European norms, into greater respect for women and also governments and law enforcement in European countries need to be aware and ready to deal with these problems. As I said, Murray misrepresents these problems and why they are going on and why they have proliferated in places like Northern England. Now, all of that being said, the social problems brought in by immigration are real, okay? These are not uh, imaginary and they are not totally unconnected to the habits and ideas of people who are migrating into Europe. But dealing with them requires real self-criticism, uh, self-examination, and effective responses, okay? Uh, it's not clear exactly what, what Douglas Murray 
thinks the right response to these problems are, other than less immigrants or less refugees. It, he, is, he is using these problems and these issues for the rhetorical purpose of attacking immigration as such. And maybe he could make a strong case for that uh, if he was honest about the facts in the record, but he isn't. Okay, this is ironic, I would say. This is one of the ironies of the book, because in other respects, Douglas Murray is very trenchant and incisive in his self-criticism of Europe. In other ways, he is insistent on uh, examining and opening up the weaknesses and the flaws of European society itself. And I would say that really that is the core and strength of the book. So to go on to the second item in the subtitle, identity. Okay. Identity is a vague, difficult uh, topic to pin down. It's hard to say exactly what identity is and how it is formed and even why it matters and what function it plays in life. But it's clearly something that a lot of people in the modern world today are very worried about. And this is actually what uh, I think motivated Douglas Murray's actual writing of the book, whether he consciously realized it or not. Okay, I would say that the best part of the book is a chapter called, quote, the feeling that the story has ended. And in this chapter, Murray argues that Europe has lost its high ideals from the past, and it has currently fallen into a state of hedonism and dissipation. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm stating this in extreme terms. I don't necessarily agree completely on all points, but he, again, he makes a very strong and trenchant uh, argument here. Uh, Europe has fallen into a pattern of sort of hedonism and dissipation, and this has happened largely because Europe has suffered from a succession of failed ideologies, okay? Ways of viewing the world that have been discarded, that have lost their persuasiveness over the past hundred years or more, okay? Traditional Christianity, then after it, romanticism and belief in art as a replacement for religion, uh, belief in science and progress, and technology to solve problems, uh, then fascism, and finally communism. And after the successive failures of these various ideologies, uh, Europe has sort of filled in the gap with just a kind of uh, superficial individualist consumerism, okay? Which, again, I would argue from my point of view is an import from America. Uh, high art in Europe is now aloof sterile and highly hyper-intellectual, okay, the art of abstraction and the art of sort of postmodern, ironic, uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, inventions. Uh, this is an uninspiring art that most of the public cannot relate to and doesn't gain anything from. Uh, as he says, public reaction to cutting-edge art has changed over the years from I wish I could do that to even a child could do that. He gives an anecdote about an art museum he was in recently with generally modern and abstract art. Uh, he was looking around and most of the galleries 
were empty. And as he was looking, he began to hear choral music in the distance. So he started to move towards it and walked into a room where a series of 40 speakers were playing the 40-part choral motet, Spem in Alium, which was written by Thomas Tallis in the 1500s, probably for Queen Elizabeth I. And these 40 different parts, speakers were playing the 40 different voice parts around the room. And Murray says that he could see why so many of the galleries were empty, because everyone had gravitated here towards this musical installation. People were standing around, uh, many of them weeping, some sitting on the floor, couples embracing, clearly uh, moved by the experience of this music. And Murray notes the great irony that the modern art that was supposed to speak to these modern people simply didn't engage them in anything like the way that this 500-year-old composition could, okay? Modern art does not inspire the sort of awe that one feels when walking into a medieval cathedral or synagogue or even an old museum like the Louvre, okay? It does not convey that sense of seeing the legacy of many generations who have poured their work and poured all their creativity and all their skill into creating a legacy to pass down through time, okay? In short, uh, art in modern Europe does not create a sense of ongoing connection to the past and the future and ongoing commitment to any sort of high ideals or, or dreams. In this chapter, Murray also interesting acknowledges the pattern of Muslim converts. Uh, and he says that uh, the typical story of converts to Islam that he speaks to uh, describes a partying in a club or a bar and then in the middle of it stopping and saying to oneself, there must be more to life than this. Okay, so one of the reasons why some people can, are converting to Islam in Europe today is because they want attachment to something that gives them meaning, that gives them ideals to live up to in a way that modern uh, consumerist liberal democratic society simply doesn't. Murray, in his turn, actually acknowledges and argues that this is one of the reasons that Islam poses a threat to Europe is because he believes it will win this kind of ideological contest for hearts and minds. It offers something that this sort of dissipated, hedonistic, nihilistic modern West cannot offer. And I believe this is a very important insight, and I believe that this explains a large part of why so many people in Europe are afraid of Islam and are alarmed simply by seeing it present in their own society is because unconsciously they feel insecure in their own identity and into their own beliefs about life and how to live. And they're afraid of what the effect of that uh, will be. So this is an important insight that Douglas Murray makes explicit However, I think he doesn't acknowledge or doesn't see the greater irony that his book is itself a symptom of this problem, okay? His book itself is, is an effect and an expression of this confusion and lack of clarity over 
what European life is all about and what Europeans are supposed to believe in. Well, why do I say that? Well, because the word Europe is in the title of the book and he presents himself as a defender of Europe and yet he never explains in any clear or specific way what that even means. What is Europe? What is Europe and what is it that he's trying to protect and defend? What defines Europe? What characterizes Europe? Okay, Geographically speaking, Europe is simply a landmass. It's just the chunk of Eurasia that lies west of the Ural Mountains. Okay, But clearly, that's not what Douglas Murray is talking about. For one thing, if you simply look at Europe geographically, the biggest country in Europe is Russia. Murray never mentions Russia. Okay, so he clearly means something more specific, something about Western or Central Europe. Okay, but he never makes clear what he means and what counts as part of Europe or how he's judging that. If one looks at the jacket design of the book, which I'm looking at right now, one sees an outline of the continent of Europe. It leaves out Russia, not surprisingly, but it does include Ukraine and all the other Eastern European countries bordering Ukraine, and it includes Turkey. <laughs> I don't know how this got past the editors. For some reason, the jacket design includes Turkey as part of Europe. Is, does Murray mean Turkey is part of the Europe that he's talking about? If so, then nearly a quarter of the residents of Europe are already Muslim and have been for centuries. Okay. If not, if it doesn't include Turkey, why not? Okay, whether or not it includes Turkey, does his notion of Europe include Albania and Bosnia? He discusses Hungary and, and Greece and other Balkan countries. What about Albania and Bosnia, countries that are majority Muslim and have been for centuries, for over 400 years. In other words, that have been majority Muslim for about the same length of time that northern Scandinavia has been Christian. Do they count? Okay, what I'm driving at is we never get a clear explanation of what he means by Europe. And without addressing these questions, we don't really know what he thinks defines Europe. Okay, maybe it's a civilization right? A civilization designed by laws or norms or customs or institutions. But what are those norms or laws or customs or institutions? If it's Christianity, and he does refer to Christianity and the Christian heritage of Europe, then once again, what about Bosnia and, and Albania? And what about other Christian countries that have been Christian for just as long or longer, like Ethiopia and Armenia? Do they count? Why not? Just because there's a channel of water separating them, therefore they're not part of Europe. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's more modern values. Maybe it's not just Christianity. Maybe it's some sort of other European values like uh, rule of law he makes reference to a couple times so he doesn't explain exactly what he means. Uh, does, does it mean uh, freedom of speech? Does it mean democracy? Are those the things he thinks is definitively European? If it's freedom of speech, then why do you include, say, 
Germany, which has very restrictive laws about hate speech, or Britain, which has very restrictive libel laws and official secrets laws, why do they count as part of Europe but not the United States, which has comparatively greater freedom of speech? Okay, what about, okay, maybe it's democracy. If democracy, then why are there so many monarchies in Europe? Most of the monarchies in the world today, Britain, Netherlands, the Scandinavian countries, Spain, most of them are in Europe. Isn't it a little weird then that what defines Europe is democracy? What I'm getting at, now one could say, oh, well, but you know, those are just figureheads. Yeah, but... They're just figureheads, but they're, part, they're still there because they're part of the definitive model of what people in those countries believe constitutes their identity. Britain still has a queen because that's part of their fundamental identity. It's part of what defines Britain. So what I'm driving at is Murray never gives us a clear explanation of what he thinks is distinctive about Europe that he's trying to protect. And probably the reason why he doesn't do that is because he knows that if he tries to, it's going to constantly run up against a brick wall. In short, there are no distinctive, fundamental European beliefs or institutions that unify the continent. Anything that you can point to are, is so vague and so broad that it is shared by many other countries around the world, United States, Canada, Japan, Australia, and so on, Latin American countries, okay? If it's about democracy and human rights and rule of law, you have that in Argentina. You have that in South Korea. What makes it European, okay? I think that he doesn't answer this question largely because it's unanswerable. It's the sort of thing that European politicians have been trying to do now for decades, and it doesn't work. What does Iceland have in common with Bulgaria? Not to put down either of those countries. They're both wonderful countries. But what does Iceland have in common with Bulgaria that it doesn't have in common with Canada? What are you pointing to that is somehow essentially European? I think there is no clear answer to that question. Murray ignores the question and acts as if the answer is obvious. But it's not obvious. So that's where I intend to take up the second part of this review, more specifically with the question of whether there has ever been a unified, cohesive European civilization. When did it exist? How did it work? And what does it have to do with Murray's concerns about immigration and Islam? And those are questions I'll discuss when I examine the later parts and the conclusions of the strange death of Europe. So thank you for listening. I hope you liked it. I hope it intrigues you enough to stay for the second part of the review. And again, if you can offer any support, even just a dollar for these lectures, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining. The link is in the description. Thank you. Thank you.